Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We are glad to join you each week to study the Word of God together. Rabbi, I want to say Shana Tova, Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much, Shana Tova, to you and to all the listeners. We are going to talk about this week's Torah portion, Vayalek. It comes from... The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, but we want to begin with the new year. We have moved into a brand new month, a brand new time of the year on the Jewish calendar. We're in the month of Tishri, and it's time for the Jewish New Year. So we say Shana Tova, Happy New Year. And the holiday in Hebrew is called Rosh Hashanah, literal translation, the head of the year, the beginning of the year. So Rabbi, talk about, first of all, the celebration, the holiday celebration of Rosh Hashanah, and then do some Bible teaching about it for us. Well, first of all, I'm so happy, Pastor, that you mentioned the literal translation of the words Rosh Hashanah, which you know we say New Year and first of the year, but the actual Hebrew is head of the year. And the commentaries talk about that this is not a New Year's party, let's go out and drink and celebrate type of day, but it's a day that's very much focused on the head, on the Rosh. It's we're supposed to be thinking and reflective, and that's indicated in the name itself. We have various traditions about the day. On the one hand, it's a day of judgment, where we are judged, uh, each person individually, and nations as a collective are judged on this day, and things are determined for the upcoming year. So that certainly gives it a very serious tone. It's also a day of coronating God as king, uh, where we essentially say there's a new year, we are uh, anointing him as our king, and and that leads to a certain festive atmosphere as we celebrate the fact that we have God as king. So it has this very interesting juxtaposition of seriousness, mixed with celebration. So we spend many hours in prayer in synagogue, but we also have festive meals uh, that go along with it. And just one last point, in terms of the background, according to our tradition, this is the date in the lunar calendar in which man was created. And therefore it's natural for both man to be judged on this day and for man to coronate God as king on this day. And we read in Leviticus chapter 23, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, chapter 23, verse 34, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, on the 15th of the seventh month, which is the month of Tishri, is the feast of booths or tabernacles, or in Hebrew it's called Sukkot, which we'll talk about on another conversation. But verse 35 says, on the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. So Leviticus 23, verse 35, is the scriptural support saying this should be the new year. But Rabbi, of course, that leads to the question, why is the seventh month the start of a new year? Yeah, so uh, 
that's why I brought it back to that date of, of creation in terms of why God created the world uh, in this time within the lunar cycle. Uh, I don't have the answer to that. But let's remember, uh, we count the year from the first of Nisan, which is the month in the spring when the people of Israel were led by God and Moses out of Egypt. That's the rebirth of the nation. Uh, and that happens in Nisan. The rebirth of the world happens in this month of Tishrei. So we actually have two different cycles happening at the same time. One, the cycle of the Jewish year, which is always counted uh, from the time of Passover, from Nisan. And then we also have this new year when we're judged, which is based on the creation of the world and the creation of Adam and Eve, which happens in Tishrei. And so we do want to say Shana Tova to all of our friends. A happy new year. Shana Tova Umateka. How's that, Rabbi? Yes, and I want to actually take a moment to focus on that, because first of all, the Hebrew was excellent. Everyone who's listening, uh, the pastor is already in the advanced course and then moving on to AP Hebrew. The greeting Shana Tova means it should be a good year. And there were some rabbis who said, what business do we have wishing a good year? Of course it's going to be a good year. Whatever happens under God's domain is good. So the reason why we add that second word, Shana Tova Umetuka, that it should be sweet, we're saying, of course it's going to be a good year. But sometimes it's difficult for us to feel it. We see tragedy, we see suffering, we see quote-unquote bad things. So we're wishing each other not only a good year, which of course it will be, because God is in control, but also a sweet year, that we should feel the goodness, that we should recognize it, that it should be sweet to us. And that's the blessing uh, that we wish to one another. So we do wish that to all of our friends around the world. And this is the beginning of the fall holiday season, the high holy days, or the days of awe, as they're called in Judaism. And so we're going to talk about a different holiday, an important festival at the end of our conversation. But let's get into this week's Torah portion. And it's short. It's a short study this week. Only one chapter from the book of Deuteronomy, Vayalek, and it means, then he went out. And so as our listeners may recall, we're approaching the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the end of the earthly life of Moses, and he's about to hand the baton of leadership to Joshua. And so we begin reading in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 1. It says, Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. I am 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to come and go. And the Lord said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. And I'm going to continue his speech in a moment, but don't you think, Rabbi, it was sad for Moses to have to stand up and say, that which I dreamed of, that which you're going to get to do, I don't get to do. And here he says it publicly. Definitely painful, definitely difficult. But again, you see the measure of the man in terms of his acceptance of whatever God has decreed. Uh, he's still not, he's not challenging it anymore. He's accepted it. And he's even publicly willing to stand up and talk about it. So the pain is certainly there, and the desire to go to Israel is certainly there, but that's mixed with his uh, acceptance of the will of the Lord, which is an incredible lesson for us in terms of recognizing that we don't always get what we want, but God, again, is doing what's best for us. So his speech continues in verse 3. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. 
And we'll continue on with the speech in a moment. But verse 3, first of all, Rabbi, this is, as we said, the passing of the baton. But also, I'd like you to help us with some Hebrew here. The name Joshua, as we say it in English, is related to Jesus and Yeshua, the name that we say for the Christian Messiah in Hebrew. So give us the roots of those names, please. Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua. And actually, we're taught back in the book of Numbers that his name was actually Hosea, uh, which means uh, salvation, and that his name was changed to Yehoshua, actually before he went on the mission with the spies. And there's a lot of discussion about why he was given that name and what protection, protection it gives him by adding on God's name. The first two letters of his name, the Yud and the He, are names from God's four-letter name, which is a yud He vav He. Uh, which for us means God was, is, and will be. It also connotes God's attribute of mercy. Uh, and Joshua uh, is a, a name of salvation. And he certainly listened to, to, to take over after Moses, to be the person to bring the people of Israel into, into the land of Israel, to be in that bridge generation from the desert into an agricultural society and a natural world of Israel was a real challenge. And in that sense, he was the real savior and continued the traditions of the Jewish people without a Moses. And that was a very important step for the people to go through. As we continue to walk through this one chapter of study, verse 4, Moses says, The Lord will do to them, meaning the other people in the land of Canaan, will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, into their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. So Moses, under the Lord's leadership, is promising the people, number one, I'm leaving. I'm going to pass away soon. Number two, Joshua is your new leader. Number three, the Lord is going to be with you on your journey. And number four, you're going to face obstacles and opponents along the way. Moses left no stone unturned in terms of uh, preparing uh, both uh, Joshua uh, and the people, uh, letting them understand exactly what's going to be facing them. This entire book of Deuteronomy, Pastor, has really been Moses trying to lay the groundwork for what will happen after he's gone. And it's important for the people to know that Joshua is the leader. This idea of passing the baton, as you said, passing the torch, of there being a smooth continuity. This is so critical. You can only imagine if there would have erupted all kinds of challenges to Joshua's authority. After this speech by Moses, where he lays it all out there, there is no room for that kind of contesting of Joshua. He has made it completely clear, and I think this, this also provided a salvation for the people that Moses was so clear about what's supposed to happen next. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. When he says that Joshua is now your leader and the Lord's going to be with you, he says in verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, meaning the people in the land of Canaan. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And I want to turn our attention just a few pages later in the Bible to the next book of the Bible, the book of Joshua, chapter 1. And it says in verse 6, that the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And then in verse 7, be strong and courageous. 
And then in verse 9, be strong and courageous. So here in Deuteronomy 31, 6, Moses says it to the people. Then just a little while later in Joshua chapter 1, three different times, the Lord says the same thing to Joshua. So one lesson here could be that the next generation is learning the teachings of God. But why does Joshua need to be reminded three times in a short period of verses about needing to be courageous and strong? If, if we go to the uh, history of the modern state of Israel for a moment, and we go to May 1948, and we see what the small group of refugees who made up the Israeli army at the time were faced with, with the armies of all these massive Arab countries all around us, outnumbered in, in numbers that there's no uh, example of anybody withstanding that kind of, those kinds of odds, they needed to hear, uh, be strong and be courageous. You go to 1967, we have all the Arab armies again declaring that they're going to destroy the land of Israel. And Israel decides to do a quick strike in Egypt to knock out their air force. Be strong and courageous. Uh, we have hostages in Entebbe that are taken by Palestinian terrorists in Uganda. And we don't want to give in to the terrorist demands. Be strong and courageous. Time and time again, this is the call. But it's not human nature to stand up and be strong and courageous. By nature, we would run and hide and away from that danger. Uh, this is a spirit, a spirit of people of faith, which, by the way, doesn't only apply in Israel, but absolutely applies in the United States and people of faith there who have stood up throughout the ages for what's right. And, you know, I was uh, watching a, a 9-11 uh, commemoration and they were showing Lee Greenwood singing uh, God Bless the USA at the World Series soon after 9-11. And he's talking about, you know, not forgetting the, the men who died, that we could be there. People really believed in something. They were strong and courageous. That strength and courage comes from these words. People of faith see this repeated over and over again. The great Joshua needed to hear it. The great people of Israel back then needed to hear it, and we certainly needed to hear it. You cannot hear those words enough, uh, but it's always together with because God is with you. It's not be strong and courageous because you've been trained incredibly well. It's not be strong and courageous because you have the best possible equipment. That's all true, but ultimately it's because you have God with you, and that's what these verses repeat over and over again, and what we have to remind ourselves over and over again. So we read Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, where Moses says to the whole congregation of Israel, be strong and courageous. Then the next verse, number 7, Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord who is the, is the one who goes ahead of you, he will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So first Moses says it to everybody. Then he says it specifically to Joshua in front of everybody. I think this is the beautiful way to pass the torch of leadership. Absolutely. And, and it's incredible the words that you just said. Moses says in front of the people, because you, Joshua, will lead the land, the people into the land. So they hear definitively that's going to happen. He repeats again the land which God has promised to give to you and says to Joshua, you will help them inherit it. This gives the people uh, tremendous confidence 
uh, to recognize, A, that they will be successful, and B, that they'll be successful specifically under the leadership of Joshua. So now we get to verse 9, Deuteronomy 31. Moses wrote this law, gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing, assemble all the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien or the stranger who is in your town, in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. And their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So, first of all, Rabbi, he, Moses, wrote the law, the commandments, what we, I think, mean the whole book of Deuteronomy here, then gave it to the priests and said, carry it along with the Ark of the Covenant. So, before we get to the speech, talk about the significance of verse 9. Moses wrote this and put it in such a place of honor, such a place of glory, that it's carried along with the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence. Yes, and there's a lot of discussion as to what he means when he says this Torah, this law, is it the book of Deuteronomy, is it the entire uh, five books up until this point? Uh, But yes, that was to be carried with them, that was to be on the forefront of people's minds. Remember, we learned a few weeks ago the king was supposed to have a Torah scroll with him. We are a people of the book. We are people who are constantly reading from the Torah, looking to the Torah, being inspired by the Torah. It has to be a part of our our day-to-day lives, uh, no matter where we go, no matter what we do. And that's part of the message here as well. Uh, It's not some put on a shelf somewhere and let some dust cover. It's something which is supposed to be an active part of our lives something which we're constantly studying from, reading from, learning from, and uh, getting inspiration from. And so then at the starting of verse 10, Moses gives the speech to the people and says, every seven years you're to gather together at Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, and it's supposed to be everybody who comes together before the Lord, not just the men, but the men, the women, the children, and the strangers or the non-Jews. And so, Rabbi, we've talked about the three pilgrimage festivals, Shalosh Regalim, the journeys that the Jewish people would make first to the tabernacle, later to the temple. That's Passover and Sukkot and Shavuot. But this is saying not just the men are supposed to go every year, but every seven years, the whole family is supposed to go. I think that this is a a family worship experience. It's training up the next generation. It's not leaving anybody out. Let's all go and worship the Lord together. And they put it at the time period of every seven years. And this is uh, uh, sort of reinforcing the point that we made just a few moments ago about how critical uh, Torah study and hearing from the Torah is. But here, it brings together all the people, exactly like you said, uh, bringing together the children. You know, women were required to come make the trip with their children. Everyone together. There's a goal of unity, that's for sure. And there's a goal of everyone being inspired. Um, certainly, women were always invited to come to the temple uh, for the holidays, but they weren't required to because they had children, they were expecting children. But once every seven years, the entire Jewish nation gathers together and they hear the king read from the Torah scroll. What unifies us together? 
It's the Torah. It's the Word of God. It's our faith. And that's what this ceremony was to uh, remind us about and to inspire us from. And a question that I had for you, one commentary I read says that the travel of the pilgrimage festival, leaving your home, wherever that is, making the journey to where the tabernacle stood or later in Jerusalem where the temple stood, was a way to reenact the wanderings of the desert, that you trust God for protection and provision, you trust God to take care of your home and your animals when you leave. So there's, there's a sense of reliving the wilderness experience, the journey. It's a beautiful idea, the idea of, of leaving from our comfort zone and going and doing something from God. Certainly what the people of Israel did in their desert experience, the idea of coming to a central place where there was Sinai, where there was a tabernacle, and, and now we're coming to the temple. Uh, it's all the same idea of doing something for God, of leaving our comfort zone for God, of uh, making a difficult trek for God. This is something which is important uh, for the children to see, to see the dedication of the family uh, to these ideals. And certainly, I, as I imagine that scene taking place, uh, it's something which we certainly yearn for. We continue in this week's Torah portion, and we get to Deuteronomy 31, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. The pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, which means to be buried in the family grave, and this people will arise and play the harlot. With the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they shall be consumed, and many evils and troubles shall come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But, and remember, this is God speaking, I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. So it's a sad commentary. It's a prophecy. The Lord says, I'm calling you to holiness. I'm calling you to obedience. And yet I know once you get into the land that I'm giving you, the gift of the inheritance, you're going to fall away from me. It's scary to see something foretold in advance and also difficult to reconcile free choice with the prophecy of what is going to happen. But the amazing thing is in, in verse 19, uh, I'm jumping just one verse ahead for a moment, uh, God says it'll be a testimony. And our commentaries that talk about, and we have this in other places also, even when the bad things happen, it's a testimony to the truth of the Bible because uh, the Bible foretells that these things are going to happen. And hopefully, when they do happen, we'll refer back to this and recognize that the time has come to repent and that things shouldn't get much worse. But throughout the Bible, there is this theme of suffering and tragedy and persecution that comes when we forsake the Word of God. It's not all beautiful. It's not all smooth sailing. There's a lot of challenges along the way. And it's for us in our time, certainly, to learn from and hopefully uh, grow from. And talk about the setting of 
Joshua being now invited into this special relationship that Moses had a face-to-face relationship with God, and now Moses is in, is about to pass away. Joshua is invited in, and is this the intimacy with God that we can all hope to achieve? Well, let's remember that Moses uh, is set aside. We'll see that in the last portion when we get to it. Uh, a very different type of uh, relationship. It's called panima panim, face to face, total clarity, no confusion, no gray area whatsoever. Uh, we won't have that. Uh, we have a, a tradition that it's only Moses uh, who can have that, and that's why uh, there's a critical point to that. If others could experience what Moses experienced, then they could undo that which Moses has taught to us. But once we establish that Moses is the father of all prophets, as Maimonides uh, refers to him, he's the king of all prophets. No one can undo what he has taught. That sets in stone that which we're taught in the Bible. And we can have other prophets and great people afterwards, but never on the level of Moses with the clarity and direct channel that he had from God. So we mentioned chapter 31, verse 18, I will surely hide my face, God says, in that day because of all the evil which they will do. They will turn to other gods, small g, meaning these pagan idols. 19, now therefore write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips in order that this song may be a witness or a testimony for me against the sons of Israel. So we'll talk about the restoration promise in a moment, but God's telling Moses in advance, write a song, write a prayer of repentance before they've even sinned. Uh, Because the Torah is supposed to be the inspiration, it's supposed to be that which prevents a person from sinning, uh, so it makes sense that we should have that. But like I said before, you do have that element of testimony of proving its truth uh, in that uh, uh, writing as well. I should mention, Pastor, that we have a tradition that this is the last commandment uh, out of the 613 in the Torah and the five books of Moses, and it is for people to write a uh, Torah, for people to have their own Torah scrolls. Some people go out of their way and sponsor the writing of a Torah scroll to fulfill this commandment. Others take part in filling in the last letters of a Torah scroll to fulfill this. And others uh, say that we fulfill it just by having books and having works of Torah, so to speak, in our homes. But the idea is that the Bible, the Torah, finishes with this command that each person must have their own. And we do need to remind our listeners, here we are in the year 2018, and we all have a Bible. We may have multiple copies of the Word of God on our shelf, and we've got a smartphone with apps on it. We have the privilege and the opportunity to study the Bible like no generation ever has before. Again, here you and I are, one of us in Texas, one of us in Israel, on the phone, recording it for our friends to listen, studying the Bible together, and we each have a copy in our hands, probably one in English and one in Hebrew. We have more opportunities than ever, and we think everybody's always had that kind of a privilege. That's not the case in history past. It's really, when I think about what people had to do to study in the past, the idea of a scribe sitting down and writing a Torah scroll, the idea of somebody who wanted to put out a book uh, sitting and writing it, and the people somehow getting copies of it. There was no printing press, and we were the people of the book uh, developing so much text. Uh, it's unbelievable what is written uh, on the Bible and the commentaries and then the Mishnah and then the Talmud 
and all the commentaries, and then the code of Jewish law, and all those commentaries. It, it is it, it, you know you walk into a uh, yeshiva to a rabbinic seminary and you see the volumes of books and you realize much of this started before there was a printing press and people were writing these by hand. Uh, it's really uh, something which is difficult to fathom and uh, really a source of great pride and also reminding us of how important study and reading actually is. So we continue through Deuteronomy chapter 31, the Lord speaking in verse 20, When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent which they are developing today before I have brought them into the land of which I swore. So Moses wrote the song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. So there's so much here, but I'd like you to define a term that we know very well, but how do you describe, how do you define the land flowing with milk and honey? There's a lot of uh, discussion about, you know, what does that mean? Why is Israel described uh, in that fashion? Uh, one of the most beautiful explanations that I heard is, you know, you see, you see a cow, uh, certainly you see a bee, and, and you wouldn't imagine that it could be the source of, of giving so much uh, life and, and sweetness and goodness. And uh, the land of Israel uh, is very much that way. You don't necessarily see everything on the surface, but go a little deeper, and it's a source of life, certainly spiritual life, and that is the greatest source of sweetness there can be. So that's certainly one explanation of land of milk and honey. But I'll, I'll, I'll challenge everyone who's listening. This is one of those moments where everyone can be a biblical commentator and to spend you know, the next 24 hours thinking about you know, what does that mean to them, a land of milk and honey? Because it's not a land where you see milk flowing or honey flowing. Uh, and why was that chosen to be the description uh, of the goodness of the land? And I'm curious if, uh, if you've come across any interesting teaching about, uh, about this uh, description. Well, the way I've taught it to our church members is like the necessities and the luxuries, more like the meal and the dessert, the milk and the honey. And that's, that's the, again, the necessities of life and then the extras or the luxuries of life. But also from a purely earthly perspective, to have milk, you got to have cows. To have cows, you got to have green grass. To have green grass, you got to have rain. To have rain, you've got to have God. For yep. honey, you got to have bees. For bees, you got to have flowers. For flowers, you got to have water. For water, you got to have God. So these are the luxuries and the necessities, but it's still back to the provision of the Lord. I love it. Fantastic. And like I said, there could be numerous possibilities in terms of understanding it and uh, so much that we can gain from just even your explanation as well. So let's finish the chapter. Deuteronomy 31. Moses, in verse 22, writes the song of repentance. Again, a preemptive repentance before the sin even occurs and taught it that day to the sons of Israel. Verse 23, then he commanded, this is God, commissioned Joshua the son of Nun, Joshua ben Nun, and said, here it is again, be strong and courageous for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them and I will be with you. So before we even get to verse 24, verse 23, God says, Joshua, You've got a mission, and I'll help you do it. Again, this 
fear that uh, you know, Moses and by extension, so to speak, God had, uh, as it were, about the people uh, remaining obedient, listening to Joshua, the way Moses was uh, adhered to, uh, you see how clear it was uh, that they had this fear. And even Joshua himself has to be given that confidence. You know, he's taking over for the Moses. How does a person do that? So again, commands him, gives him the same words, uh, reminds him that he will be successful. He will bring the people to the land. Reminds him it's the land that God has sworn to give to you. So it's going to happen by necessity. Uh, but all those things were necessary uh, to inspire Joshua and the people to be able to move forward. And so, Rabbi, my question comes from this latter part of chapter 31. It came about when Moses finished, verse 24, finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. And we'll read the next few verses in a moment. But what is the power or the imagery Take this book, Deuteronomy, take this and put it next to the ark. What is the symbolism of this? So first of all, again, uh, most of our commentaries say that it's referring to the entire Torah, all five books, and uh, it has to have a permanent place of primacy in the, uh, amongst the people of Israel, a constant testimony to God, especially you talk about this Torah scroll written by Moses being in that place. You know, if a person ever... Uh, felt weak in their faith and belief in the Sinai revelation in doubting uh, they could just go and take a look and see the actual Torah scroll uh, which was written by Moses himself uh, that's something which is very powerful uh, in terms of the uh, not just the image but the the clarity that a person can have by seeing it in that place and then we get to verse 27 the Lord says I know your rebellion and your stubbornness behold Actually, this, this is Moses speaking. I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I commanded you. Evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Wow, what a depressing speech. I'm calling you to obedience, yet I know you're going to be disobedient. Wow, what a sad comment that he makes to the people. Yeah, and you almost wonder, like, well, how do the people uh, respond to that? What was their reaction to that? You would imagine that would be, I'm going to do anything I can to prevent that. And perhaps maybe that is what helped prevent it for such a long time. Uh, you know, you try to look at it in the positive way, that the people did go into Israel. They did, for a period of time, reject the temptations that were all around them. Uh, but it just wasn't enough to keep them uh, from succumbing to it uh, ultimately. And the last verse of chapter 31 is the beginning of this song that he writes, this speech that he writes, which we'll talk about in the next Torah portion. And so, Rabbi, we're going to talk about Yom Kippur in just a second. But as I often ask you to do, summarize the teaching. What lessons should we take from Deuteronomy chapter 31? Certainly, uh, again, how much we need to remind ourselves to be strong, to be courageous, to remember that God is with us in all that we do. 
and therefore uh, we have no reason to fear if we're adhering to his word and we should do what we feel we need to do in order to be successful as a people and as uh, individuals. Uh, the importance of the unity of the people of Israel gathering around the Torah, that the unity is not just uh, symbolic, but it's, it's, it's a unity based on faith, based on adherence uh, to the Torah, and the primacy of study, how it has to be so much a part of our lives, both in terms of the commandment to write their own Torah, to go every seven years to hear the Torah, this concept of study uh, leading to adherence to God's Word and inspiring us is one which we can apply uh, to our lives today. We began this podcast talking about Rosh Hashanah, the new year, the head of the year. And so we'll finish this week's podcast talking about the next event on the Jewish festival calendar, Yom Kippur, meaning Day of Atonement. And there's a lot of scriptures, but the main scripture we might look at is Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, Tishrei, where we are today, on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble yourselves and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns with you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It will be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So that is the first scripture where it commands that that day become the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And we know it begins earlier in chapter 16 of Leviticus with the instructions given to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest, that he would go before the Lord behind the veil in the Holy of Holies called the Kodesh HaKodeshim and do sacrifices and prayers and repentance on behalf of the people. And so Let's talk about present tense Yom Kippur in a moment. Take us back to the days when there was a tabernacle and a temple and the significance of Yom Kippur in those days. Yom Kippur, uh, back in the times when we had a temple and tabernacle, was actually a completely different day uh, than we have today. It wasn't a day where everyone was in their synagogues involved in prayer. It was a day where the high priest went through what we call the service of Yom Kippur, the only day in the year when he was able to go into the Holy of Holies. And the people stood back and watched, waited. They might have been involved in personal, private prayer, but there's no commandment about that. There's no record of that. They were waiting for the high priest to accomplish the atonement for the people. Of course, it had to be accompanied by people doing their own personal atonement, but that wasn't part of the actual service. It was a high priest waking up early in the morning, doing everything with a little bit of assistance from others, sacrifices, immersing himself in the ritual mikvah, in the bath, going to the Holy of Holies, doing the incense, all kinds of sacrificial uh, ceremonies. Today, Yom Kippur is, we're in synagogue all day, literally at nighttime, and then we go back the next morning, all day long. Uh, it's a day where we're chanting together, we're praying together, we're confessing together, uh, a very different type of day. The one similarity, though, is the fasting. They fasted back then from sundown uh, to, to the next night, and we do that today as well. And yet there's no temple. There's no holy of holies. There's no place for the high priest to go to. So how is it observed today? So today we actually have a prayer where we, first of all, we read from the Torah scroll, and uh, 
uh, we read the service that the high priest did. So that's a sort of a commemoration of that. But we even say in the prayers, today we lack it. We bemoan the fact that we can't do it anymore. That was when we had a temple. We yearn for that uh, to return. In the meantime, we have to do with a, a secondary service, if, if even that, nothing even close to the way it used to be in the majesty of the high priest. And we're lacking Yom Kippur in the way that it really should be. Having said that, a very powerful teaching from a rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, who lived through the destruction of the temple, and he saw the people, the Yom Kippur, after the temple was destroyed, how they were distraught, they were devastated, they didn't know what to do. And he reminded them, and he said, Ashrechem Yisrael, praiseworthy are you people of Israel? Who is the one who purifies you? Is it the sacrifices? Is it the ritual bath? It's ultimately God. And God can purify you and give you atonement now, even if we don't have a temple. We still yearn for it to return, but ultimately it's a day between man and God, and that's what we focus on in our time. So we look forward to a special day called Yom Kippur, the highest and holiest day, the most somber day of the year for our Jewish friends as they remember the sinfulness of the people and the need for forgiveness that can come from God if we will bow our hearts and our knees and our lives to the only one who's able to forgive us of our sins. And so, Rabbi, as we look forward to the Day of Atonement, give our Christian audience, our Jewish friends are very familiar with it already, but our Christian audience, a couple final thoughts leading into Yom Kippur. The idea that we have one day a year where we can remove ourselves, as it were, from the physical world. There are all kinds of rules, not just not eating and drinking, no bathing and other things, uh, and no wearing uh, leather shoes. There's things that we do to remove ourselves from the physical world and become spiritual. We're almost like angels uh, on this day. It's a very powerful experience. It's one which is necessary at least once a year to just separate and be godly, be spiritual. And when the day ends, you actually don't want it to end. You actually want to keep going. No rushing out the door to go eat. You want to hold on to a last few minutes. Every single person needs to at least once a year have their own personal day of atonement where they sit down. You actually put together your own confessions to God. It's just between you and God. You actually confess what you've done wrong. You express regret over it in that confession, and you commit to change in the future. Even if you know that it's going to be challenging and difficult to fully uh, make that change, uh, change something. Come to God and say, I'm better in this one little area, in this area. I'm not going to say I'll be perfect because we know that we won't be. But just saying I'm changed, that makes you into what we call a teshuva. You're a person who has done repentance and you're a new person. And it shows that you're growing and it shows that you're changing. And that's ultimately what God wants from us. And that's the blessing of Yom Kippur. And the greeting you say in Hebrew, Gemar Hatima Tova or Gemar Tov or Hag Sameach. And so we say all of those things to my friend, Rabbi Lippman. Thank you for the time studying the word of God together. Thank you so much. Wishing everyone a continued blessing of a good year, a good and sweet new year. As we learned before, L'Shana Tava Umetuka, Gemar Hatima Tova, the judgment for everyone should be a good one. And Jew or not Jew, let's all be involved in that process of atonement, of making ourselves better one step at a time, uh, committing ourselves to lives of faith, lives of spirituality, lives of kindness to others. And if we do that, there's no doubt that we'll experience God's blessing. Amen, amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.
Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.